Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosen. Welcome to episode 78, which I'm preparing ahead of going to the CSUN Assistive Technology Conference in San Diego. Looking forward to catching up with many people there. And maybe you are listening to this podcast on the way home. It's a long trip from New Zealand to San Diego. I see they're having it in Anaheim next year. They're sort of coming back to that part of California, which is nice because it's one less plane for me to have to take. So I fly from Wellington to Auckland. There's about an hour there of travel. That is uh, from New Zealand's capital to our largest city. And then it's a 12-hour flight from Auckland to Los Angeles. Go through the whole U.S. immigration process there, change terminals, fly off to San Diego. I think that's about only an hour or so. But door-to-door, it is a fairly long trip. And, of course, then it's into the madness and the mayhem of a busy CSUN assistive technology conference. What I find when I travel to these things is that I always have a lot more on my iPhone than I need. I load up with podcasts and even audible books and books on voice stream. And of course, I've got oh a few playlists with thousands of songs. And generally, what I tend to do is sleep a lot on planes these days. I don't do nearly as much international travel as I used to. I used to be out of the country a lot. And uh, luckily, I don't do it as much now. But I just found that I had to learn how to sleep on planes. It was a real problem for me when I first started doing extensive international travel. But needs must, you see, your body adapts. And all the meditation helps too. It it really does. So if uh, The Blind Side is one of the podcasts that you are listening to as you head back from the conference, perhaps, or maybe you're heading to the conference because we'll publish just in time for that for some, I I hope we we soothe you to sleep or something like that. I hope we keep you awake and interested, actually. Shortly, I'm going to be talking about a really important subject, and it is technology related, but it's also related to our health and well-being. And this is the accessibility, or lack thereof actually, of gym equipment. And we're going to be talking about a report that has been produced by a UK organisation called Riker into the inaccessibility of gym equipment and what might be done about it. And of course, the first thing relating to fixing a problem is clearly identifying and articulating that problem and so we'll talk about that shortly and then a follow-up from episode 74 when we spoke to Nicole Ellis about her documentary Love is Blind we're going to be talking about somebody who became blind in adulthood and has had some difficulty with dating and relationships and wants to be a part of the solution and he's looking at setting up an app and a website called Love is Blind. And you may have an opinion on this about whether it's appropriate to have sites specifically geared for disabled people or whether you believe that it's better to make sure that mainstream sites are inclusive. So you are welcome to feedback, of course, on that or anything that comes up in the podcast. The email address here is theblindside at mosin.org. That's my email address, theblindside at mosin.org. You can, of course, also subscribe to the Blindside email group, and that is the Blindside plus subscribe at groups.io to become a part of it. That's the Blindside plus subscribe at groups.io. A word from Mosin Consulting before we get on to the main event, and that is to tell you that Bonnie Mosin's very popular book, It's Off to Work We Go, is now available in another format. So for some time, you've been able to get the book in EPUB or PDF, accessible in both cases. 
And now it's available also as a narrated Daisy audiobook. This has been narrated by Heidi Taylor, the artist formerly known as Heidi Mosen before she went and got married. I have got a very nice son-in-law. Have I said that on the podcast before? <laughs> Hopefully I have. He's a very nice son-in-law. I like him a lot. He, he knows how to build computers too. So not only is he a, not only is he a nice young man, I, I'm glad to welcome him to the family. He's a very useful son-in-law to have. Anyway, so Heidi Taylor is narrating. I get stuck on that, by the way. Can I just tell you, just quietly? I, I say to Siri or whatever, call Heidi Mosen or FaceTime Heidi Mosen, and it says, I don't see anybody of that name in your contacts. And I'm like, bah, can't get used to it. Hey. Uh, anyway, Heidi Taylor is narrating Bonnie's book, It's Off to Work We Go. And we've talked about this in the podcast before. But if you are not familiar with it, it's a kind of a how-to guide. Bonnie used to be a vocational rehabilitation counsellor in the United States system, a very successful one. And she put this kind of how-to guide together about seeking jobs, um, discussing your disability. When do you discuss that? When do you reveal it? A whole bunch of things. Once you get the job, how do you integrate with the workplace? It's been really well received. If you haven't read the book yet, or maybe you would like it in human narrated form, then you can now purchase the Daisy audio book. It's a little more expensive than the text version because it took a long time to produce. So the text version is still there and you can purchase that for $29. The Daisy audio version is $35 and you can go to the Mosin Consulting website. And with all our titles, of course, you add them to your cart, you can pay with PayPal. If you don't have a PayPal account, remember you can just use your standard credit card to pay. You don't have to sign into PayPal or get an account or anything like that. And then instantly, once you've made your transaction, there's a link that takes you back to the Mosin Consulting site and you can download your purchase right away and begin reading. So that is It's Off to Work We Go by Bonnie Mosin, now available in Daisy Audio as well. You can go straight to the book by heading over to mosin.org slash work that's mosin.org slash work our place our issues the blind side with jonathan mosin we're all aware of the importance of regular exercise but for many blind people our exercise options are somewhat limited it's hard for many of us to walk or run independently at a good enough clip to call it exercise so some of us are inclined to look at the gym as an option. Or perhaps we have a set of equipment that we use at home, but we travel for work or pleasure from time to time. No matter the reason for being in a gym, it can be disempowering and downright frustrating to find that we can't operate the gym equipment because of touchscreens without any accessible user interface. Even when there are physical buttons on the equipment, without voice feedback, we need someone to teach us what they do. Accessible fitness equipment isn't developing in the way it should because of barriers including cost, industry culture and a lack of awareness of blind users' experiences. That's according to a new report by Riker, which is a UK organisation providing market research and support for elderly and disabled people. To discuss the report and what might be done to improve the situation, I'm joined by Chris Lofthouse, who's the outreach manager at Riker, and by Mike Brace, a board member of the Thomas Pocklington Trust, the charity which funded the research. As a former Paralympian, he's a regular gym user. Welcome to you both. It's a pleasure to have you on The Blind Side. Could I start with you, Chris? Tell me a little bit about Riker and what the organisation does. 
Yes, well, Rika is is a charity. We're a consumer research charity, and we've actually uh, come out of the you know the witch style consumer. Uh, world, which um, I believe in Australia's choice and in, in, in New Zealand is consumer NZ and in, in Germany Stiftung Warentest. So we come at it from the point of view of the consumer, but we, we're specialists of dealing with um, access for older and disabled people, including blind and partially sighted people. So really the key to our um, research is the end user, the consumer, who um, is using the particular equipment. Um, and in this case, it was looking at specifically the, um, the, the access to gym equipment, treadmills, cross trainers, exercise bikes, and rowing machines. I'm interested in the carrots that you might dangle, as it were, because there is an argument that says, look, the market for accessibility accommodations is so minuscule that the only thing that will really make a difference is legislative requirements. Do you think that's the case or do you think that many accessibility provisions actually can be justified in a business context? Well, that's a, a sort of a, a bigger question than really the, the, the research that we, we looked at. Um, I mean, I, I would argue that, as probably all three of us would argue, that making things right in terms of access benefits everybody. Um, and certainly with voice output, as you, as you mentioned, that would certainly benefit many people who, for whatever reason, cannot use the screen. Um, so we would... I suppose argue it at from a, an inclusive design point of view, and and obviously we're all getting older, so why not make things easier to use? You know, particularly in the gym. Mike, your organisation coughed up with the cash for the study. What was the motivation behind that? I think uh, Thomas Pocklington Trust basically look at uh, research into. I suppose the more social models of disability in terms of what prevents uh, people with disabilities and vision impairment in particular living sort of day-to-day normal lives in terms of doing what other people uh, have the chances to do. And uh, one of their partners uh, in this is the Metro Sports Club, which had been for you know a long time saying basically, um, you know, Sport and recreation and health is a big, big key initiative, but basically there's very little out there for people with a vision impairment to enable that to happen easily. So Pocklington then said, well, we need to have some more evidence around that as to what the key issues are. And that's why they then uh, put the funding forward for uh, Rika to, uh, to, to undertake the research. I'm interested that you are a regular gym goer, Mike, because it's a bit of a daunting place in a whole bunch of ways. I mean, you've got lots of noise. Normally there's loud music. There are loud machines. There are people grunting. There are sweaty people with legs that could sort of kick your face as you try and navigate the environment. It's not the most blind-friendly place to be, is it? No, not at all. And and I think that's that part of the key issue is um, almost... Using the research uh, was was a byproduct, really, was um, trying to inform and educate the staff that uh, um, are in the gyms, because in the absence of talking uh, um, machines that actually allow us to set the machines ourselves, you are going to be relying on the staff. And 
And I think the, the project also had that effect. It, it illuminated just the difficulties of, of what, what we faced in terms of going to the gym. And a number of the staff then were really quite active in helping um, to describe the machines or describe the um, uh, machines that we could use and, and, and when we couldn't use them, uh, adapt them. So I think there was a byproduct in terms of almost that education of the staff. Um, I'm, I'm actually chairing a, um, a, a group a uh, project group within one of the other key providers of leisure uh, facilities in the UK, and um, they're looking at exactly this. How how do you make um, gyms more accessible, not just to vision impaired, but really to everyone? You know, uh, uh, the, there's people from women in sport on there because many many women find um, you know it, it issues and difficulties in and using the standard gyms. And uh, 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 amongst you know many other groups, and I think the point you made is actually the one that we're coming towards, and that is, if you can show enough of a business case, if if all the gyms are looking for newer, more members, if you can actually increase you know the, the take up of membership by five or ten percent or whatever the the figures might be because of things being more accessible, then basically that might actually prompt a number of the manufacturers and a number of the um, gym providers to say, actually, when we purchase these pieces of equipment, they need to be more accessible uh, uh, to all of our users and not just those without um, any additional needs. And that's a challenge, isn't it? Because a lot of blind people don't have jobs. And so they sort of they tend to be at the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum in terms of income and gym memberships are expensive. So it may be that there are many people who want to go, but actually can't afford to go. So we're in a kind of a catch-22 situation in terms of moving the needle on the accessibility issue. I think that's right. I think the the, the, the issue will be that we you you won't get a level of investment on a, on a charitable basis. I, I the, the message I'm picking up from many is that you know what you've outlined is is reality. That basically they're not going to give free gym membership just because someone has a disability and at the same time then go to extra expense to make the um, you know the, the, the equipment uh, accessible and go to the extra expense to do that. So I think there is a reality uh, issue there that um, free membership doesn't mean then um, that, that suddenly everything's going to be accessible and to be accessible I think will will potentially rule out that they'll give free membership they, they may do some introductory issues but I think at the end of the day if we use a business model you're not going to get it done as a charitable process it will be a, a, under a business model or not. Chris, could you talk me through some of the methodology that was employed to put this research together and then some of the key points, some of the findings from the research? Yes, absolutely. Well, we, we um, as, as is our tradition, we went with, with people to the gym, uh, 20 blind and partially sighted people, to try out the actual kit and um, had a protocol finding out which areas of, of the particular um, equipment uh, people could use, looking in particular at, um, you know, the screens, the consoles, um, and, and finding if they had, um, you know, tactile features that, that people could use. Um, and obviously the, the touchscreen consoles were, were the issues um, 
in terms of people having having access. Um, one or two people could use certain aspects when uh, the, there was touchscreen feedback available, but the, the, really the barriers were there and, and what people wanted was voice output. Um, and I suppose in today's world with um, with more and more voice outputs um, through Amazon and, and, and other other out, outlets, it's uh, it's really the question, you know, if you can do it in other situations, why not can't, can't we have a, a dedicated socket for uh, voice output in the gym? The challenge is, of course, even when you've got physical buttons, you've got to have some familiarity with the function of the device, don't you? Because I have I have a treadmill, for example, and I know now because I've been taught how to do it, that if I count, if I push a certain button and I count the number of beeps, I'll get to the program or the incline or whatever that I want. But I, I can't intuitively know that unless I've been taught it so even without a touchscreen even when there are physical buttons sometimes not having access to that output is still going to be problematic unless you've got assistance yes i mean that that was the the request that people wanted was um uh, you know a voice output of the information of what what people are using um of, of the particular buttons so um the, the audio output, the voiceover technology was was really what what people wanted. And and presumably you could get part of that is there is an induction when you're using a gym, or um, more and more now trying to get some sort of audio manual or or physical manual that would actually explain to that if you're using it for home use. And uh, but I but I think you're right. I think it's still relies back what we found in some of the gyms that we were using was you know um getting to the gym um and using the gym were were two very distinct areas of problem so you know some of them were enormous uh, buildings so getting to the changing room and getting from the changing room to the gym really would have needed some assistance in the first place and then navigating around the gym as you outlined you know, one of the gyms was absolutely huge. I think it had over 200 um, um, uh, user points within the gym with different pieces of equipment and trying to navigate around that. And, and, and what was also interesting was things like color contrast. In some of the gyms, you had uh, gray floor, um, gray walls, and a, and a gray, um, you know, uh, piece of equipment so that if you had partially sight, uh, uh, in, and we're using it. You couldn't see the difference between the floor stepping onto the piece of equipment. So it, it was broader in the end than physically just whether the equipment was accessible. It's whether it was visible uh, and and uh, you know manage manageable in terms of navigating it as a piece of equipment as well as the as a piece of kit. Right, and also I guess there are a lot of blindness related conditions that come with additional hearing disability built in congenital blindness conditions and so you've got a situation where you might be able to function fairly well in many situations but in a cavernous noisy environment with loud music and loud sounds your echolocation isn't going to work and so it can be very debilitating it's very much so and you know, if you're using earphones into a machine while you're using it, sometimes that can actually affect your balance and uh, and various other things. But uh, but again, what we are also finding is that 
discussions we were having about using some of the outputs for um, people with a vision impairment also had a pretty uh, positive effect on some people with learning disabilities that couldn't uh, read the screens but could certainly u utilize the, the voice um, outputs as well. I mean, it wasn't part of the research, but certainly, um, you know, looking at those crossover issues to do with other other disabilities was was actually a, almost a, a follow-on from the research that pointed out some of those uh, pluses that would be applicable to other groups. Right. That's good strategy, isn't it? Because if you can increase the market size of those who would benefit from the change, then it might make it more attractive in a business context. Very much so, and that's yeah. what I was saying about you know the wider audience. If you're saying then that by by coming out with the, the fact that the equipment's more accessible and the staff are more accessible to enable you to use a gym, then basically you're potentially on a winning formula for a, for a business concept because you're going to increase membership. People are going to pay to come. Um, but they're not going to pay to come if they think that the, the gym's not for them and they can't access it. The report's available for free download on the RICO website, and I would urge people to read it. I found it in an accessible PDF. But one of the things that came through there, and you've mentioned it a couple of times too, Mike, is the assistance that people get when they go to a gym. And I'm interested in how this works in a UK context. Is that considered a reasonable accommodation that the gym is required to provide? Or are people relying on the goodwill, as it were, of the staff at the gym to provide that out of the goodness of their hearts? Difficult to know that it's... I, I don't think there's a simple answer to that because I do think it does depend on um, the gym and the uh, provider and sometimes the uh, level of training that the particular gyms have, have given to their staff on uh, inclusion. So... The, the gym I use are incredibly accommodating. They'll look after my guide dog in the office. Um, they'll enable me to get to the gym if I need to, but it, it's smallish, so I can get there fairly unaided. And then in the gym itself, you don't feel a burden when they will set the equipment for you, the timers or whatever. And when I then need to move from piece of equipment to piece of equipment, they you know don't make you feel a burden. They'll just you know, do it as part of the job, have a good chat with you, and, and, and that's been really good. On the Conversely to that, I've got friends that have been stopped from going to gyms because basically they've been told unless you can bring someone with you, uh, you can't use our gym because you're a health and safety hazard. And is there any sort of redress in that situation when they get that message, or do they just do, do people typically just go elsewhere? Well, largely they go elsewhere, but some will try to challenge that. But again, you, I think you pointed out what, what counts as reasonable adjustment in a, in a, in a commercially available, um, you know, it, this is a non-public, if you like, um, operated thing. They, these are commercial concerns. And basically, um, them having staff purely to then guide people backwards and forwards um, isn't something that they, they automatically have on hand. And some gyms, like the, the one that I was mentioning with sort of 200 um, uh, equipment points, may only have one or two um, staff members on duty to keeping an eye on 200 potential users. So, um, you know, it, it's difficult to then say, you must do this and you, you can't do that. Um, 
and 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 I think I think that's why some um, organisations are also now looking at developing buddy schemes that will uh, enable until, if you like, uh, uh, there is a resolution to that, um, to actually then go to a gym and have that level of support that they um, require. Chris, because you're doing this sort of research on a regular basis, you have the wherewithal, the, the, the tools, the understanding of how to reach people that many of us as consumers can't reach. Sometimes if we find that something's inaccessible, we might complain to the, the gym in this case that we are using or we might complain to the store that we bought the product from. You've gone to the manufacturers. I was interested in the comment from one of the manufacturers in your report that basically said, well, nobody's ever raised this with us before. Yes, I mean, I think that a lot of our research is, is actually quite unique. And when, when we <clears throat> do research with with people, you know, in this case with, with visual impairment, then we, we point out something that, that nobody has actually uncovered uh, or uh, bring it, bringing it to the attention of the, uh, in this case, the, the gym providers. But, I mean, Riker covers all different people with different disabilities and of all ages. So we quite often do research that hasn't been done before and and it all always emphasizes the kind of the unique perspective of of making inclusion you know what i would call a reality making it actually practical and and real as as mike has been describing um in his visits to the gym how do you ensure that you transition from a report that has provided some very useful information and really crystallised the issue to actually changing things for the better. Well, I, I mean, Riker always works in partnership with, with other charities and, and in this case with the Thomas Pocklington Trust and with uh, Metro Blind Sports, as Mike has mentioned. And through this sort of collective effort um, to, to to make people aware, to make the gym providers aware. Perhaps Mike would, would could say more because I'm sure he's he's picking up the baton of this research to to carry forward. Yeah, very much so. The 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 group that um, I've recently been asked to chair is initially started up by one of the biggest um, suppliers of uh, of gyms uh, in the UK. And the idea really is that to to look at all of the issues, uh, equipment, training, um, staff attitudes, advertising, etc., uh, um, to make to make the gyms more accessible. And I think part of the issue there was that if you've got uh, potential then for I don't know six or seven of the major gym uh, providers who between them probably order thousands of pieces of equipment so you're looking at, at, at the sort of bulk levels if they can then um, put forth to saying in future what they want is a piece of equipment with this um, level of accessibility then there is certainly a potential chance of a purchasing power to actually uh, bring about those changes with the manufacturers and you know with with the prices of microchips and everything else being fairly minuscule in comparison with uh, what's happened in the past, um, 
you know, it shouldn't really be beyond the wit of uh, the manufacturers to come up with something that would would certainly be more accessible than um, than currently are, because all of them have got screens, and it's a question of then translating that into being able to at least have an audio output that uh, um, that would allow you at least to to understand what the screen is saying and and perhaps where to go to to change the program. I was intrigued at the Worldwide Developers Conference that Apple held in June of last year where Tim Cook made some comments about a new protocol that would allow Apple Watches to interface with certain gym equipment. And at the risk of being exclusionary, because I know not every blind person has a smartphone, I wonder whether that might be a potential kind of solution going forward because there are so many disparate user interfaces that can confuse people. But if you could have your smartphone interface with all of this equipment and give you feedback in a style that you've become familiar with, that may well be one way around the problem, do you think? Yes, no, I, I, I think I've... Uh, uh, one of the other pieces of uh, research that Riker was doing was almost exactly that. They um, got a number of people to use the... Uh, Apple Watch, uh, also the, the the Hive central heating, and also the um, uh, another uh, piece of kit, uh, and and exactly that in mind. How do you know what your heart rate is? How do you know what you're you're doing in terms of your exercise? And and I thought then it was only a very small next step to then having that interact with enabling me to you know change the pace of the running machine or the tension or, or or the distance I'm wanting to row. So um, I think it certainly um, um, must be, you know, uh, um, an app with linked to that would be very, very uh, possible. That's really exciting, I think, because HomeKit has the potential to make all sorts of appliances so much more accessible. And it's, it's a really wide issue that we're talking about beyond the gym, because we've recently shopped for some new appliances, including a washing machine and dryer and dishwasher. And you've just got to be so careful these days that you don't purchase something that completely, completely locks you out of using a critical tool in your own home. Yes, I agree. And 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 you know we've focused we've focused very much on you know setting the uh, the equipment you know to be able to run at a sp- certain speed or whatever. But one of the important things for me, uh, as I've just mentioned, using the, the the Apple Watch, was then being able to get the feedback about what distance did I run, uh, how fast did I do it, what you know what was the timing of it, what was my heart rate doing. So all of that, if you like, feedback is actually an integral part potentially of using a gym and much of that information is also on the screens um, that you you get in the gym so I still have to get the attendant say you know did I row 3,000 meters and what time did I do that in and how many calories did I burn off during that so you know it's it's all of the um, usage that you want feedback on not just whether you can set it to to run at a speed or or go a particular distance it's a really critical issue we're discussing pertaining to gyms because it it goes back to keeping fit keeping well keeping healthy if people feel passionate about this and they'd like to either monitor what happens next or somehow contribute in a meaningful way to advocacy what can people do to help further the cause well, I think if, if interestingly, there's been two or three articles recently um, since Eureka published the the research, 
um, from individuals, you know, almost asking the same questions as the research uh, posed. So there is suddenly a, a bit of a groundswell on that. Um, I think, obviously, coming, uh, feeding that into uh, um, the the um, the systems that are around, either to, through to Pocklington. Um, I, I don't know whether Chris, um, you've you've had much feedback from uh, from individuals about the RECA research, or um, or how they they might be able to provide feedback in terms of saying yes, that's exactly our experience, or in our area that works slightly differently. Well, we haven't commissioned um, particular feedback, but but we would welcome um, dialogue, particularly on social media, to to highlight this. And like you said, Mike. In fact, in The Guardian this week in the, in the UK, there was an article, wasn't there, from uh, a visually impaired guy who was, who was posing the same questions about um, in, inclusive fitness equipment. So um, certainly people can feed back to us through, through RICA or through Thomas Pocklington Trust because um, it would be interesting to hear pe- people's you know, viewpoints on this. And especially if, if, if it's working somewhere, if, if basically... You know, it, very often there are pits, bits of kit that are more accessible than others, but it, who knows about them, you know, other than perhaps one or two users in a particular gym. So it, it's also around in any feedback that, of how things have worked and if there are accessible programs, then that would be really useful to start building up that sort of picture. Um, and certainly I think um, the, the, the group that I'm chairing, we will be going out... Uh, when we've come up with some some thoughts forward about how to improve um, accessibility across the board, I think uh, that will be also a point for us asking for uh, feedback to say, by and large, do you think this is right if you're in a group that you feel disadvantaged in using a gym? Does what we're uh, does what we're proposing start to meet some of those issues and and hopefully redress them? And listeners who'd like to know more, we'll put appropriate links in the show notes for this podcast. I want to thank you both for coming on The Blind Side today. It's a really important issue. And thanks for shining some attention on it. Thank you, Jonathan. And you, yeah, thanks very much indeed. Clatter, clatter, clatter. Jigga, 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 jigga. What the soup are you doing? Oh, I'm just impersonating a good old-fashioned teletype machine as I gather the latest technology news for Mushroom FM's technology magazine show, The Daily Fiber. Dude. What the actual? Well, Mushroom FM's this kind of, like, retro music station, right? Um, right. Right. Yeah, right. So? So... I'm impersonating a teletype machine to fit right in. Clatter, clatter, clatter. Jigga, 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 jigga. Oh, dude. Ping. Dude. Enough already. We'll let the music do the retro bit. We'll use the latest technology to gather the world's latest tech news and bring it to the mushroom crowd every weekday at 3 a.m. and again at 3 p.m. Eastern. Simple. So, you mean less jigger jigger jing and more like whoosh? You got it, my friend. The latest technology news with some great music thrown in the mix. That's how he does it. How who does it? Jonathan Mosen. Oh, him. Yeah, he's everywhere. He's everywhere. No. He's just right here. The Daily Fiber, Mushroom FM's technology magazine show, 3 a.m. and p.m. Eastern, Monday through Friday, on Mushroom F Jig 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 M. Feel the need to sound off? Share your thoughts about this week's show by email 
send an audio file, or write it down and email the blind side at mosin.org. In episode 74 of The Blind Side, we featured an interview with Nicole Ellis about her documentary Blind Days, which examined the subject of blind people seeking love and lust in the digital age. As a follow-up on that, our next guest, Andrew Kranichfeld, is trying to do something practical about the issue. He's working on an app, Love is Blind, which is an accessible dating app focusing on the needs of people with disabilities. And Andrew joins me now on the jolly old FaceTime. Welcome to The Blind Side, Andrew. Good to have you with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited to, to uh, get the word out on my project, so I hope this helps. I hope so too. How did you get started on this? What was the inspiration? Well, um, first of all, I mean, I, uh, I went blind in 2010, so my whole life I was sighted. Um, you know, what, what really shocked me, you know, is how, you know, able, ableism, I don't know, which is basically described as a discrimination or, you know, preconceived notions about people with disabilities, um, is, is just all over the place. I, what, what I found was happening on, on all of these dating apps, Tinder and plenty of fish, um, you know, I'd match with plenty of girls, which means, you know, they would see me. They think I was, I guess, attractive enough to say, yes, I, I would like to talk to this person. And then, um, you know, I would, I would start texting with girls and then, you know, we'd get to the point a, a lot of times where they'd say, all right, what do you think? Do you want to go on a date? Let's see a movie. And, you know, this actually just the other day happened. Someone's like, do you want to go see uh, a screening of The Dark Crystal? It's a Jim Henson movie from the 80s. And I was like, yeah, but, you know, just so you know, I'm I'm blind, but you, you sh- must have seen that in my profile. And, and she instantly unmatched me. <laughs> so, you know, I've run into all, all different forms of this from matching with people. And then before we even talk, I think what happens is they'll read my profile, see that I'm visually impaired, unmatch me. But, you know, more often than that, like I said, I'll be talking to people um, and and mention that I'm blind. And then, they'll, you know, I think people don't understand how, how capable disabled people are and how we have so much technology these days that, you know, we can do just about anything a sighted person could do. Yeah, it must be incredibly demoralizing to go through an experience like that. And as somebody like you who has become blind later in life, so you know what it's like to be sighted. I mean, how did you view blind people before you were a blind person yourself? Well, it's it's funny because I didn't really know much about it. I had a cousin. Um, my cousin Adam was actually born blind. So, you know, I would see him um, for holidays and stuff. And I know he, uh, as a blind person, even I think he had a few other difficulties related to it, um, other than the physical disability. And, and he, you know, uh, had a job. I think he ran a newsstand, um, at a train station in somewhere in Connecticut, which is a state in the U S for out of state listeners. And, uh, you know, he, he really overcame a lot. But, you know, now with the world shrinking and all the social media and everything, you know, it's, it's so much easier to get in touch with um, other disabled people, other blind people. Um, 
So, you know, it, it, it has changed a lot. You know, I, I, aside from knowing how much, uh, another thing is, you know, become, when you become blind, you get linked up, or at least I hope most people get linked up with different organizations. Uh, you know, I, I got some training on computers from uh, the Lighthouse, uh, the Jewish Guild, a place called Computer Center for Visually Impaired People in New York at Baruch College. And you network and meet some people that um, just uh, just blow my mind. Like they they know how they're they're blind and they can do computer programming. Or I I know there's a, a blind Olympic athlete named Amy Dixon who's also a trained sommelier. So <laughs> she like runs marathon like triathlons and can tell what kind of wine it, it is just by tasting it. <laughs> yeah. When do you think it's appropriate to disclose? Because I'm wondering what would have happened if you had not disclosed your blindness in the text message, but instead you just turned up to the movie and you'd sort of showed the woman what a nice, charming person you were. You know, it, it does beg the question, when should you disclose your blindness? I, I don't know. I, I, that's a good question. Um, I guess I always try to disclose before I meet with someone. Personally, like I'm pretty independent and like I'll travel by myself, um, but I'm not great getting around, especially indoors in new spaces, um, you know, without someone guiding me. So, you know, I don't know if I would have impressed her that much needing to be guided through the movie theater. But, um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, I do think it. You know, I, I think it's good to get it out there. And and I that's the whole reason, you know, one of the catalysts of me making, you know, my dream is developing this application is because I don't want people to feel, you know, that anxiety about disclosing a disability that that shouldn't be the way it is. And I know I've met, it, you know, I have met some nice people in online dating I just feel like a large percentage of the people I match with don't want to date a blind person. So, you know, what I'm hoping the app could eventually do is even if it's a smaller amount of people, you know, a smaller pool of people you could match with, the ones you match with already are okay with dating a blind person or they're already okay with dating a deaf person. So no one would ever match with, you know, a person they don't want to go on a date with. So I suppose there are two aspects to this. One is that some of these dating sites, I've never used one, but I understand that uh, some of them are not terribly accessible anyway. So if you're a screen reader user trying to use one of these dating sites, sometimes it can be a frustrating experience. But then there's this other social issue that you're talking about where sometimes it can be a frustrating experience in that regard. So it sounds like you are trying to deal with both of those concerns by developing an accessible app where you're absolutely transparent about the fact that people with disabilities are on the site. Yeah. Not only that, but you know, you, I want it to go beyond just being fully accessible. I want it to, you know, have features that are specifically designed for disabled people. So for example, if you're going to have photos, then for the, for a blind person, you have a caption under it. Like you have to have some sort of caption, you know, maybe there'll be uh, a short, maybe 60 to 90 second little low quality video with audio 
and then you can hand type in captions. So, you know, then it's accessible to deaf. It's the blind people can hear it and people who aren't either can watch the video. So describing things like height, hair, color, all that kind of stuff, you mean? Yeah, as much you know, we want as much information in the profile as possible. And and you know, in addition to what all the normal ones would say, you know, height, you know, body type, uh religion, activities, you know, um things like that, age, you know, then we'll have things that you, you know, there'll be a, a um like let's say a a bottom limit on the number of characters. So you can't have an empty profile because, you know, a lot of times, even on Tinder, I'll match with someone and, and it and it will say, you know, very, very little to nothing. Uh, and and then, as you mentioned about the the um, accessibility of some of these apps. So, you know, I, I had a girlfriend before this for a long time. And after we broke up, you know, a little maybe like six months later, I was looking on these apps and you know, some are partially accessible, like plenty of fish. I'm able to do a lot of things, but then there's things that just say button. So for, for people who don't know, if you're blind and you're using a screen reader, instead of saying something like menu, profile, uh, messages, it'll say button, button, button. Right. So, you know, there's no way you can really use it. And I say plenty of fish is, is, is pretty good. It's, it's about half accessible. But then someone recommended to me to check out Bumble, which is an app where the woman first looks at all the men and says, all right, yes to this guy. And once if you, if you or the yeah, the woman has to say yes, you know, before anyone talks, no matter what, I guess, or something like you can't message the woman until she says, OK, so I, I downloaded Bumble and I couldn't even like make an account. That's how terrible that was for you know, blind people. Do you think that this issue affects one gender more than the other? Sometimes I've heard it said that it's actually easier for blind men because women, and it's a huge stereotype, of course, but yeah, but but it's often said that women tend to be more caring, you know, because they're more maternal, they might be more willing to take a blind person on, whereas for a blind woman looking for a man, it's sometimes said it can be more difficult. That's an interesting question. I, I actually haven't talked to too many people about that. That's one thing I hope to do, you know, through the development of this application. Um, I personally thought it, the exact opposite because at least in America, there's still this sort of image of the male being like the more physically strong, you know, the one who likes to drive the car, the one who likes to, you know, lead her, lead her instead of vice versa. So I, I actually thought it was the opposite way that. Well, see, the, the counter argument, the counter argument is that, that men tend to be more superficial. And so they want to show off, you know, the, the, this, attra <laughs> this attractive woman to their mates. And mm -hmm. if the woman is blind, then, you know, sometimes I hear people getting concerned about comments from their friends like, well, how come you can only land a blind woman? And so mm. that that's the counter yeah, argument to that's, that. That's an interesting point. Yeah. I see both sides. I mean, I, I you know. It's all grossly think, stereotypical, uh, no matter which way you look at it. Now, I know my 
audience well enough to know that there will be people listening to this who are screaming at whatever they're listening to right now saying, no, you know, this is this is ghettoizing blind people, that it's really important if we are to be accepted in the mainstream that we hang in there and use mainstream services. What would your response to that criticism be? Well, my response to that is, is that, you know, my app isn't just for blind people. My app's going to be for people of all disabilities, um, and it's going to be open to people of all sexual orientations and genders. And, you know, I want it to be very inclusive. Uh, you know, I feel like a lot of the other apps are the exact opposite. They're exclusive. You know, it's for Jewish people. It's for black people. It's for Christian people. It's for, you know, if you're looking for cougars, I just want anyone else who, who wants to find love and and is open-minded then you know come to love is blind and and hopefully it'll it'll help that's an interesting point because of course there are many other niche dating sites out there right for various groups in the community oh yeah every religion or ethnicity or hobbyists things you know yeah i've got to ask you this what about the fetish thing i mean there are some people who have a sort of a thing for disabled people, which is a bit scary, really. I mean, you want to avoid those people coming to the site and kind of making it an unsafe place. Yeah, I, you know, safety has been one of my thoughts. Um, one idea I had to sort of counter that would be maybe at least on the first couple dates, go as a double date or bring a friend, you know, just, just to be safe and make sure the person's not being nefarious. Um, but, you know, you, you can't guarantee there's no fetishist on, on any site. You know, on any dating site, there could be fetishists. <laughs> Do you think that there'll be many able-bodied people who would want to use a site like this? You know, you, you, coming back to that ghetto argument again, what you may end up creating is a site that just links people with various disabilities with one another, which may not necessarily be a bad thing because there are some who say that those relationships tend to work out better anyway, but it, but it could, it, it could be a little bit exclusive in that regard, potentially, right? Yeah. I mean, it's an experiment, you know, it could go in any direction, but what, from my own experience, like I would say about two, one out of every five or two out of every 10. So like around 20% uh, or so are willing to, talk to me and usually, you know, um, go out with me. So if, if we say maybe even half of that 10% of the people in the dating app community decide to give our app a shot, that's still, you know, a lot of people. And then, you know, if you look at some of the numbers, I think in the United States alone, there's, there's 50 million people that have a disability. And I think there's something like 20 million that have a, you know, a, a serious disability. So it's a big market. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and like we were already talking about disabled people are doing more than ever capable of more than ever because of, you know, new technology and, and, uh, people being open-minded. I, I mean, when I first went blind, I didn't know people could use computers. I, I didn't know blind people could use computers and uh, I had an iMac from 2006 and that, and you know, my blind cousin had told my father that he uses 
computers with a program called JAWS. So at the time, my my ex girlfriend Raya Googled it on my Mac, and and it popped up. Oh, all Macs have a program called VoiceOver. So you know, I was able to teach myself that you know I was already on the computer I owned for free, which to me is amazing. I lo- I love how Apple goes out of its way to make sure you know their products are accessible. Um, but you know, from there. I, I got into some athletics. I, you know, I, I learned how to run with a guide. My friend Heidi, uh, you know, got me back into running. And, and then, like I said, I've met blind triathletes and sommelier and writers and just about everything in between. So are you developing this app yourself or are you contracting with someone to develop it? I'm working, uh, with a couple people, um, that's a little, I was working with someone, I think I might be switching at the moment. One thing I'd love to get out there is if someone wants to work with me, you know, I'm, I, I'm looking for someone to either partner with or, you know, just, just work part time with on this. Um, you know, I have other jobs I, I currently do. So just having a little help with certain aspects. One, one issue I've running into working on the whole thing by myself is sort of using different email marketing options. Cause some of those things aren't fully accessible either. Yeah. Mailchimp's so, a bit of a problem, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. That's what I've yeah. been trying to figure out. I, I can't believe how difficult it is. I've yeah. emailed them, you know, it's just, um, so yeah, I mean, if if anyone out there is listening, and maybe we could you could link my website or my email at the end, and they could reach out to me. We'll we'll definitely put that in the show notes. Have you given thought to a business model? How is this going to be profitable? Will there be a fee of some kind to use the the, the app? I was thinking more of an ad based. Um, personally, uh, you know, it, it all depends. But there's a lot of business now. You. Know, know being developed for disabled people if you watch tv or listen to the radio you know there's ads all the time for new drugs for blind people and new products for blind people i'm sure you've heard of all these like orcam and ia ra and uh you know all these new devices that Mm -hmm. are not cheap but i'm sure they'd like to reach out to an audience of disabled people and, you know, I, I also need to learn more about, you know, people people with other disabilities and, you know, what products might help them, you know, because I want th- – these are ads, obviously, to make money. But if they're also things that could help improve the lives of the disabled people, I don't think they'd mind, you know, getting some ads. Do you have a time frame in mind at this point for when you hope to have everything up and running? <sighs> Not, not really. Originally, I thought it would be done by, you know, this spring or summer. Um, I do have some people who are, have mentioned they're interested in investing. So, you know, if I do get someone who wants to work on this with me, I, and I personally might might be able to invest a little money in the, in the near future. So I, I'm hoping that maybe by the end of this year at the latest, but again, there's still some, you know, there's still some moving pieces. Good on him for giving it a go, Andrew Kranichfeld. And that is his Love is Blind project. That wraps up The Blind Side. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to The Blind Side, a production of Mosin Consulting. On the web at mosin.org.